Season 3, Episode 2 of the Board Game Gambit Podcast, Table Hogs, where we talk about games that take up so, so much space. Joining you, as always, is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Hello, everyone. How are you? Good. Uh, Things are good. I am constantly tired because I've been running a lot. Uh, training for a marathon next Saturday, which I don't know why, but well, that's beside the point. And <laughs> and uh, the semester is finally approaching the end, so that's good. Although I'm um, droning in students' essays, but it's fine. Our things with you. All right, uh, work is crazy, but. I still have managed to find time to get some good gaming in. Yeah, for me, it has been a little harder recently, also because Anna is away and I don't know many people yet. So I've been playing a lot of very, very light stuff with my sister and my mother and things like that. But I have a few few things that I wanted to to talk about uh, from from before. Um, And so that should be good. So, what about you? What what has been interesting in your gaming recently? Anything that struck you? So, I've been playing three games, which are very similar, but they're also they're they're their own unique games in their own right. Um, I've been playing Cascadia, Calico, and Verdant. Mm-hmm. They're all yes. <laughs> I was telling Scott that I was like, Jackie will hate me talking about these because they're not his forte. It's good that you do it, so I don't have to. That's that right. sounds great. Cascadia, um, Calico and Verdant are all games from Flatout Games. They're puzzly with uh, very simple rules, but uh, a lot of strategy and depth as far as like choices and things like that. Um, Cascadia, of course, being the 2022 Spiel de Jar winner. Um, it is a very fun game where you uh, are placing discs onto a grid that you're building by placing different uh, tiles down and you're trying to get not only the biggest wildlife area um, of the different types of terrain, but you're also trying to place the animals down in a specific pattern, uh, which changes every game. There's different scoring uh, cards for each animal. But so on your turn, do you have a what a hand of tiles? How does it work? Nope. So there's a there's a set uh, amount of pairs of discs and tiles, and um, there are some ways that you can. Well, one way that you can uh, spend it's a called a nature token, and you can then either refresh some of them or you can uh, pick a pair of your choosing. Like you can pick a token from a different set. Um, so it's very simple. Like it's, I basically just taught you almost all the rules and it's 
but it's it's a lot of fun and it's very accessible for people who aren't very heavy gamers but it still has a lot of a lot of fun to it um so that's cascadia um the other one calico is similar but you're trying to build like little patterns and you're trying to attract a specific specific cats based on the patterns that you're laying out and if you get enough colors in a row then you get buttons and if you get a button of every color then you get a rainbow button and you're trying to make specific patterns and colors around scoring tiles so there's a lot of stuff going on but it's that's probably the chunkiest of all of them just because you're you're trying to figure out where to put this tile so that it meets requirements of everything that you're trying to do. Um, but I like that one as well. So it's, it's more like pattern and like pattern identifying. Um, and then verdant is the most recent one of theirs. And that is a card game where you're playing cards and into like a grid and you're trying to make plants, and I don't know. They're they're all similar, but they're all very different. And I I really like them. I like those kinds of like spatial games. I know that you don't really, but I must say that Verdant sounds. I mean, looking at it, sounds a little bit more interesting to me. To me personally, uh, for you, is the one that you. I mean, if you were hard pressed to to pick one, is the one that you you prefer, or does it depend on player number? What, what what's your your take on that? Um, I think that Cascadia is very good. Um, it, I mean, it won an award, and I think that there is a reason for that. Um, it's because, like I said, it it seems to be the most straightforward of all of of the three, and it. So it appeals to a very wide audience, but it also has that replayability because you have different goals and they can be interchanged. And so there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but Verdant, Verdant is just, I don't know, it's just different because it's you get to, to make the different plants and you put tiles on the different rooms. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. But I think if I had to pick only one, it would probably be Cascadia. And it's interesting that Calico and Verdant are both by Kevin Russ. Um, so they are they share the designer, while Randy Flynn, the designer of Cascadia, has done his first game, which is impressive, and uh is coming out with a different game that I am more interested in, Tabriz. Uh, yes, next. which I've I've already backed on GameFound. <laughs> well, if you like the, the first one so much, although it's it, it looks very, very different in terms of type type of game this actually looks way more up my my alley i must say that they're all very nice um not necessarily stunning in in terms of art or components but they are suiting they are all, yes uh, some are more cute uh, like the cat one is cuter than the other two uh, the plant one is a little more funny because i see that there are armchairs and tables and that separate and yes plant spacing um, opportunities. I have also been playing, as I said, I've been playing light games, but mostly games that are um, 
that have been around for a while. Something that was new to me that I played mostly with Anna um, is claims. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. So claims, I don't remember how I stumbled upon it. It's um, claim, sorry, not claims, claim. Um, and we also claims to claim to exist, but is exactly the same uh, structure, the same system, is a trick-taking game, which uh, I have discovered that I like trick-taking games that are either for two players or cooperative. I don't particularly like other uh, trick-taking games with very few exceptions. But a claim is a two-player trick-taking game um, that works in two phases. So you basically split the deck in two. Um, there are 52 cards in the deck with different suits. And you first play with half the deck in the two players' hands, 13 cards and 13 cards, and you play 13 hands, and the prize for winning each hand is either getting the card that is revealed as a prize or the other card, the card from the top of the deck. So sometimes you want to win it if the card that is showing is very good. Sometimes you want to lose it if the card that is showing is bad so that you hope that whatever is on top of the deck is better. And by doing this, you build your hand for the second half. So already that is an interesting twist, but what makes it really fun is that each suit does something um, completely different. the, the the powers are the same for throughout the suit. So the zero and the nine of, of a suit have the same ability. And there are five in the basic game and five in claim two, and you can mix and match and you can bring in stuff from expansions that we don't have. Um, and there are things like one suit is a wild, not a trump, but a wild. So you can play it in response to whatever you want. Well, normally you're forced to to play suit if you have it. One is undead that can be collected even in the first part. One is the the dwarves and they you do, you want to have uh, you, you you collect them if you lose a hand rather than if you win it. Uh, dragons make you start even if you lose the hand and things like that. Um, and in the second half, you are trying to collect cards and basically I mean majorities for for groups and since there are five uh, factions in the game in each game you want to have majority on three and you win the game it's very quick it's um it's interesting this system of you are twice trying to keep track of what's going on because you do it in the first part and then all of those cards are clear then what you have built becomes the second but i think what really makes it fun is is the different cards and um I must say that we have played it quite a bit now, but so far, um, like a dozen times or so, so far we haven't mixed a match because just uh, switching from the base combination to the the second game combination has been different enough. Um, so I don't know if we will ever feel the need to, to mix a match, but you technically can. And it sounds exciting. It's just that I don't want to go back and forth disassembling the decks, I guess. Sure. Um, but I feel like you'll need to get Claim Anniversary Edition. Oh, no. They're, re- they're re-releasing it with re-illustrated uh, cards 
and new factions. Seven new factions, including your favorite. Which one? Vikings. Oh, that that does sound good. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know at all about this. And so the good thing is that like the everything that I bought so far costed me cost me like twenty bucks. So mm-hmm. even if I decide to to get the new one, um, I, it will not be a big a big problem. What is it called? The Royal Edition. No, what Claim Anniversary Edition. It's coming out next year. I don't. Seven new factions. I didn't need to know that. Automatons, folk singers, griffins, farmers, raccoons, royals, and Vikings. Well, also, are... four new scenario cards. <sighs> oh, that's bad. I will need this. <laughs> yeah. I will probably give someone the, the the old one, so it's it's fine. It's not like one of those where oh, but I have invested two hundred dollars on this. How can I right. justify the new one? Anything else that you have been playing that was, I mean, that you can actually keep rather than having to trade it because the new version comes out? <laughs> um, I've played Federation, which is a game that I think you would really like. You are playing over five rounds and you're trying to appease all of these different planets that um, you gain influence with them and there's a double-sided worker placement mechanic and it's, it's just, it's fun. I've had fun playing it. I've played it uh, twice now and it's a lot of fun with it's just so different like I've gone for different completely different strategies both times um, it's a little more complicated than what I want to really get into right now but it's it's got like a voting mechanism and an area control mechanism and lots of different ways to score points and it's a point salad type thing, but end game bonuses and it, there's a lot of stuff going on. How does it scale? Do you like it with two? Uh, I did like it with two. So they have um, blocking, like a very simple blocking mechanism for two players to make the board a little tighter. And I think it works fine. I am a little... Uh troubled by it meaning that i the art i like a lot uh, it's um, miguel coimbra um which was did the seven wonders sequel this battle or a bunch of games that small world a bunch of games that i really like and the art when i can never see a card and the images for the monsters or the aliens whatever um it looks very nice um i must say that when i look at the board and the player boards they don't draw me in that much, so I will have to go past it. But I also see a lot of clear, neat iconography. So there is yes, it does draw me in in that, especially when I look at these uh, alien tiles or whatever they are. <laughs> um, I must say that the the player boards do look a little. They're a little busy. Yeah, a little yeah. 
spreadsheety, uh, yes. even if they are cute, uh, because they have all of these little drones and bubbles and planets on them. But um, does it? How long does it usually play? Um, I think when we've played it, the first time I played it, because I hadn't played it before, it took probably about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. But the second time I played it, maybe like in an hour and a half with two. Oh, that's good. That's my my favorite length for for a euro. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would love to definitely to try it. And these meeples are cute too. Yes, the meeples are really really cute. My first player starter broke though. Oh no! How did you break it? It's one of those, like, it's like a cardboard standee and then the plastic bottom. And so I was trying to, like, put it in and I put it in and then it and then it just sat there for a second. And then it, like, basically, like, exploded in half. (laughs) So I'm, like, sitting there. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Now with special effects. Yes. So another thing that I've been playing that I will try not to to become repetitive about because it's one of those that uh, lends itself to be talked about over and over is we finally got into Arkham LCG Mm -hmm. which we had avoided for for a while um, mostly because it's an LCG and it's it's a lot it was also very complicated to get for a while because you needed to track down all of the little packs that were not available etc but they last year or so they repackaged it completely so instead of having to get the core box and then seven little packs for the first campaign and then seven others for another it now exists as the core box and that for each campaign you have one box with the story and if you want one box with new cards for yourself so without getting into the complexity of a game that has a lot of it but it does a few things that we really like one um Surprisingly, the story is fine, but I thought it would drive the the game even more. For example, famously in the description, and it's easily spoiler around, is in one of the scenarios, your house may burn down. And so I thought that would spawn a lot of differences, but that simply changes a um, a setup in a follow-up game, which means, and that's the positive, that is really replayable. I, one of the reasons we hesitated getting into it was, well, I don't know if I ever would like to replay it, and if you don't, it's an expensive game to go through um, if every time you need uh, a new scenario, for three scenario, you need a big box of 60 bucks or whatever. But it's not the case. It is very replayable, and I really liked it. The challenge is, is there. And another thing that we really appreciated is that it's meant to play, be playing campaign, which we like. But after each discrete game, which is a solid game, like one to two hours is not a, a small thing, you change the deck that you're playing with. But because you do so with experience points that you gain throughout the game, you do not rebuild completely your deck. So it's it's a deck building, I mean, meaning pre-building before the game starts, but not with the complete openness of a Magic the Gathering of a Game of Thrones second edition, sure. whatever. Um, so you will change a few cards. So you make choices that are important and then you're ready to, to start the next one. Um, all of them work 
more or less the same on the big picture. You are trying to avoid a certain kind of timer and trying to reach certain objectives. But what you do for those changes uh, vastly, sometimes you have to explore, which means turning from moving and turning up um, one location after another. Uh, often it involves collecting clues, which means going to different places and exhaust the resource clue that is there by uh, testing on the appropriate characteristic. And sometimes you have to fight, but that's not always there. So when you build your character, especially the first time you, you face a scenario, you don't know exactly what you're going to face. You want to help um, each other out. Although when playing with two players, you don't do that much because you can only do it if you are in the same location. So when you're playing with just two characters, that doesn't happen that much. And the, well, the gimmick is that instead of rolling dice, you have a bag with tokens, with modifiers, mostly negative, some positive. So you set up your chances by deciding basically how many resources you want to spend to try the test. And then you draw a cheat and see how it resolves. Um, I was under the impression before playing the game and before getting the game that you would exhaust the bag so that you would gain more control on what's there. That's not the case. So it's really a customizable die. The advantage over the die is that they they can put in more tokens to change the difficulty or in one scenario they ask you to put in this extra token that has this extra effect which obviously you couldn't do with the die. The art is the standard but very good Arkham Horror files from um, Fantasy Flight. We are really liking it. Um, we When we got it after Essen we played like for three nights in a row, a little too late into the night every night, and uh, that's a sign of of a good game. Um, it is still expensive because again, it's true that you can and we have already replayed the the campaign, but you really want to get into the new uh, the new boxes with new cards, new scenarios, new flavors, also because one is in Antarctica. One is traveling around, one is in Egypt, one is in New England, outside Harkham. Um, and so it's not a game that someone, I think, would want if their objective is to have a contained game. Even if you could technically play the same three scenarios over and over, it really shines in getting new stuff and new cards and new um, new challenges. And that's what makes it an LCG, but we are very, very happy with it. Um, I am getting a little tired of the Arkham Horror gist and the, the feeling of it, because we have played a lot of Eldritch Horror. We like it a lot. Eldritch Horror replaced Arkham Horror for us, which we had played a lot. And so simply exploring more of these, oh, the cultists are now in the woods, the cultists are now in the house, the cultists are now <laughs> watching the serpent rather than the dragon, rather than the big alien. I think there is only so much that can be done with the, the Lovecraft setting. Sure. Because yes, people like to point out that there are, I don't know, 48 ancient ones but because the theme of of this is that they are so incomprehensible and horrendously powerful and all evil sure they're different but the, the stories that you can tell are somewhat limited but 
with these caveats, it is an excellent, I think, excellent game. So my question for you is, so where Scott and I kind of falter on campaign games is playing it like consistently. Do you think that this would be something that if you like say tomorrow, you guys stopped playing for a while and came back to it in like five or six months that it would be, you wouldn't have to like look back at the story or anything or. No, because as I said, the story, a lot of things happen in a scenario. You meet people, things catch fire, catch on fire. You escape places, you delve into places. But there are very few notions that carry from one scenario or another. It's literally one or two notes. Usually is this person died, this person survived, or how many of these things did you solve? or this this main event happen. And so marking it down is extremely quick and you don't have a list of, say, like in Tainted Grail, which we really liked, but that was the problem in Tainted Grail. Even just remembering what had happened was crucial to play the game well. While here is, if you haven't killed the big bad boss A, when you play the scenario B, you shuffle that card from the previous deck into the new deck, which the game setup tells you to do. So you just need to check whether you kill them or not. Um, and the flavor is very consistent throughout the campaign. It makes sense how you proceed, but there is never something that you player need to remember from the previous game in order to defeat the new scenario. Okay. At the same time, I must say, uh, again, strongly, that it is a very involved card game. Uh, so it, it is a game with effects and events. You have items that you pay with resources and you put into play and you can exhaust, and some of them have limited uses, and then you have cards that instead do something and they are a one-off, but you still have to pay for them. And then all of these cards you can also use instead to help you... Um, solve the the, the, the test the, when you pull chits from the bag. So this makes it a great game. I know that you, like me, like uh, games with cards that can be used in different ways. Yep. So here there are only two ways, but it's on every card. Every card you have to choose, do I want to keep this for passing the test or do I want to put it down, but that costs resources. Um, but that makes it so that if, say, someone had interested in things like, um, I'm blanking on the name, but that fantasy flight quasi-adventure book that they put out, or even the Eldritch Horror experience, which is a little lighter, this is a more involved game. You have to look at your hand and constantly keeping in mind what you can do, what you, pri you prioritize, decide how to risk on the test. But it is, it is shelvable in a way. Um, okay. And yeah. The only other one that I've played as far as like um, cooperative card games go is like the Hogwarts one that I played with you guys. It's very, remember. very different because that's a proper deck building, right? Um, yeah. First, that's much lighter, which means it's more accessible, but also there are fewer interesting choices to make. Yes. Um, and and they are they are drastically different. Um, because that's 
also that's very procedural in a way um the uh, awards battle game meaning mm. you you collect money to buy cards and you collect damage to defeat the enemies um so it's a very straightforward deck builder where the theme supports the game i think if that that they yeah. can original theme it wouldn't have been noticed much i mean i think it's fine but um this instead is it actually sometimes the game might detract a bit from the theme because the game is very involved etc doesn't have that feeling of horror and mystery because you are constantly okay how much do i need to defeat this where is my card i i must wait for <laughs> to come up which yeah. again makes it i think a better game um but for example if a friend who's not into gaming said oh i really like lovecraft i would never ever spring this game on them while <laughs> my nephew likes uh harry potter my mother asked me if it's a good idea to to buy the awkward battle um card game for him mm-hmm. and i had no idea and then, but i said yeah we know that game it, it it's fine it's gonna be fine for a 13 year old that doesn't play a lot of board games yeah. that's very different beasts cool so you want to get into the topic absolutely table hoggers with our <laughs> this uh, table hogs yeah these giant games that regardless of their complexity is not a, ga- a matter of length is not although often they tend to be long but that's not a requirement i was thinking of uh, how do we sacrifice in a way table space is that meaningful we have seen that there are games that have tried to address that like the tiny epic series it, it's the anti that there are games that revel in it and games that seem to not want to do that but happen uh, anyhow so what is your before we get into any detail what is your feeling are you a more of a minimalist or do you like games that tend to occupy all of the available space so if i have to take the leaves out of my table i know that i'm in for a good time uh for me that's that's what i think uh I really think that a lot of my bigger games are some of my more played games because the table presence on them excites people to play those games. They, they're always like, oh yeah, let's play, you know, Rising Sun or let's play something that, that, you know, covers the whole table. That's awesome. I think that when it takes up so much space, you still have to have that balance of like, I still have space to put my stuff down. Like, because you need that. It can't be, you know, ridiculously large. Otherwise, you know, where are you going to all play this on the floor? Like (laughs) it has to fit on a table, but um, if it takes up a big chunk of the table, that's always exciting for me. Yeah, for me, I think I, I am in a similar situation. Well, beside the, obviously, the, um, someone cannot play a game because it's too big, that they won't like it, That's that goes without saying. But I think that for me, first there is a little bit of a difference between a lot of the games I play that are 
occupying a lot of space with things in waiting. I'm thinking of miniature heavy games, but also games like I mentioned before, Eldritch Horror, Arkham Horror, they had no miniature, but they had a ridiculous amount of cards, but there are cards that are there in case you use them. Um, and so those, I, I think I like them, but I can understand a little bit of the, the criticism of so much stuff, right? I'm thinking of a lot of the big miniature games um, and I'm sure we will have some examples, uh, both of us, but um, there is something to be said for games that spread complexity around and depending how it's done, it can either be a source of clarity. I'm thinking, for example, of how big um, Anachrony can be, but mm-hmm. Anachrony has very clear spaces and actually made spaces that could have been smaller, larger, but that makes the game clearer. Yes. There are also games, um, I'm thinking, for example, Agents of the Consortium, Consortium, uh, an older uh, Euro game. Um, it's a little rarer, but some Euros tend to have a little bit too much going on and vice versa, they want to add yet another um, chart, yet another board, yet another piece of the player board, maybe even through expansions, can become a little busy. Um, I think expansions in particular tend to be uh, problematic sometimes in in that sense. I like expansions that integrate with the earlier board before. But I must say that largeness uh, can be interesting. Uh, You talked last episode about Marrakesh. That's a very big one, right? It has a big central board. And then each player board is a regular size um, Euro felt board. I think that each player board is almost as big as Bruges' entire board. And so there, I haven't played Marrakesh, but that will be the, the distinction for me. Does it enhance and simply makes it clear so that you don't have to stress about not understanding things because they cram too much into it? Or vice versa, did they get or did he get, in this case, Stefan Feld um, enamored with the possibility of a big, large game rather than a small and contain Castle of Burgundy. And so that that will be my my curiosity for that as well. Yeah, so um, there's one game that I've always seen at conventions that I've never seen anywhere else. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called War Room. Oh, I've only seen on Kickstarter is basically the evolution of Axis and Allies. I think it's by the same it's, designer. It's like a huge like globe is the the board and it's enormous. And I've never seen anyone like playing it outside of a convention or heard of anyone playing it outside of a convention. Cause it's it's so, so large and it there's so much stuff going on, on the board. <laughs> And I'm always, like, very scared of it. Um, I, I think that's a reason why I don't get into things like Warhammer and things like that, because those are, like, also table hogs. But they're, there's things that you have to focus on, like angles and can they see this? And so there's a lot of other stuff going on with those that I've never... My, my friend Dan actually... Um, started getting into Warhammer and he tried to explain it to me and I was like, I, I can't. 
there's that's a lot going on already and i don't get it there is also a lot to buy i used to be in it when i was like 14 and uh, i I, the local shop that sold them closed and so they were selling things for 80 percent off or so so my friends and i bought a lot of it and then we basically never bought anything else for the next 10 years because then another shop opened, but obviously they weren't selling things <laughs> for 80% off. Um, the games are interesting. I understand, though, why people who play that tend to dedicate themselves to that system rather than exploring. I mean, maybe they explore another couple of miniature systems, but because it's monetarily expensive, mm-hmm. It's connected to the hobby of painting and modeling and making your own terrains. So that also is a, a commitment in terms of time, etc. And then going back to the table, uh, I find that is the one kind of game that I much prefer playing at a gaming store because they have nice, well-painted, large terrains on large tables, something that a, it's hard to have a tome, and B, even if you have, it, you will build your table, and that it, those are the terrains that you have, unless you want to also invest time and money in all of the terrains. And so, because I prefer playing with people that I like and that I get familiar with, I prefer playing at home rather than going to to a game store often. But yeah, those were were big, and we were young enough that we would play on the floor. So <laughs> that's a change. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. Which system did then get into? You know? Oh, we, we, I have no idea. We're, he, he started speaking about it, and it just like completely went over my head about like, the different models and the lore and the different. I was like, I can't. But was it fantasy or space? I, I have no idea. Oh, I, I'm happy that this impressed on you so much. <laughs> yes. Now, one of the things is I I sometimes say, okay, the next time that I'm in a working a lull or something like that, I will pick up um, miniatures painting again. That again, it hasn't been since I was 14, so six years ago, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but, even if I did, I think I would focus just on, on board game miniatures, which, by the way, have become much, much closer in quality to uh, modeling miniatures. They are still not the same, uh, also because otherwise board games would be incredibly expensive. Yes. They are now, I mean, I think you can, for example, paint a Simon a game and be very satisfied with the models you're working on. Um, but yeah, I think miniatures in general, even in board games, are a little bit of a peculiarity in the table hog because they're always the intention, right? They want to be on your table full of miniatures. Yes. It's always weird to me when there is a game that includes four miniatures. Or two <laughs> miniatures. I was like, what's going on here? Um, I recently passed again on a Kickstarter campaign for a game called That May Die by, I think it's Rob Davio and Eric Lang for Simon. And again, another Lovecraft-inspired game, Cthulhu That May Die. But one of the things that sealed the deal for me in not wanting it was that 
they have tiles that are too small for the miniatures. So oh, no. Oversized miniatures and a bunch of cultists and your um, heroes, and they don't fit on the tile for the room. Um, and that, that I'd rather have a big, big room in that case. Um, but yeah, it's. I think that board games are by nature a, a physical medium. It's completely different to play, for example, something online. It might be cool or not, but it's a different experience. And so the size of it matters to the point that I was first drawn to Tiny Epic Kingdoms. Uh, sorry, well, Tiny Epic Kingdoms was the first, but Tiny Epic, the series in general. And I still appreciate the design of it. I somehow appreciate the portability of it. But it's getting to the point where Botan and I are a little frustrated with them. Uh-huh. Because you said this game, you explained this game, and then like, but couldn't it have been a regularly sized game? Because yeah, it was cool that I could fit five in my bag when I went somewhere and then I played one. So at that point I could have put a regular size Euro right. in the box and played that. Um, and so, oh, look, they have all of these tiny meeples. What's wrong with regular size meeple? As far as I know, there is no game yet that has done oversized meeples. I mean, maybe some demo copy, but not. Uh, a game that is simply a big box full of four inches tall meeples. <laughs> I hope that stays the case. I don't want to see that, but that would be the next evolution, I think, in Table Hog. I was thinking of it was this game that I played at Gen Con. I don't think it was quite four inches, but I think it was like Meeple Party or Meeple Meeple Party. Yes, it was called Meeple Party. Oh, they are fat. Yes. <laughs> they were chunky, but they weren't they weren't quite that big, but they were Was the game as bad as it looks? Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we got a demo at, at Gen Con and I was like, oh, I hate this. <laughs> I mean, I don't wanna get on a on a tangent because I really I have obviously strong opinions about meeples. Um <laughs> but we should talk about meeples at some point. Yes. Uh, I have been will wanting to talk about meeples since the Meeple Hero, whatever was the game that you got, the fantasy city defense. Um, mm-hmm. um Meeple City, I think, maybe, you know, I don't Meeple Hero, I don't know. Meeple something. Monsters and Meeples? Monsters and Meeples, thank you. Uh, uh, but yeah, let's, let's, I'll try to, to steer away. Um, <laughs> from the Meeples, back to the, the table, table hog. Yes, and back to the table hog. I think that finding that right balance, not only between presence and playability, um, but also between visibility and functionality because as you know like you do i also think that there is no reason to prefer games that are not as nice there is a certain snobbery that as um, i think survived from when mass market games were not great and had pieces and sometimes there is still uh, in our hobby uh, a certain tendency of certain players to go oh you know that game as art and miniatures, therefore it must be dumb. 
and I obviously don't share that, but there is sometimes the, the, the being drawn to the excess, right? Oh, if I put in another 20 miniatures, or if I make them even bigger, that can become um, a better game. I think that games, even one that, as you might remember, I didn't particularly care for game-wise, but I think the presentation was perfectly done in that middle level, was, uh, well, middle, it was a very quality game, Dwellings of Eldervale, where leaving aside the extra special bases with the voices for the most <laughs> get, but they are not yes. in the regular deluxe version. They had uh, meeples that were the right size. The board was sizable. It built up. You had your own um, personal things. And it was big, but nothing felt like, oh, they could have done this um, 30% smaller and still achieve the same clarity and beauty, etc. Um, sometimes there are games like one that I got, Massive Darkness, uh, from Simon, which is a fun, very light um, dungeon crawl cooperative game mm-hmm. where the amount of miniatures in that case, not the size so much, but the amount of miniatures was really, uh, oh, we need to put a lot of miniatures. Basically, each enemy is composed of a boss and then miniatures that are basically minions that are only there as counter to be taken down. And so that means that the tiles are bigger and the space is bigger and it gets a little ridiculous. <laughs> All of this, I think, obviously, in an hobby that has become, well, it has always been, but it has become transparently consumeristic and I fully em- embrace it, unfortunately, in a way, because I, I do that. Do that. There has been a, a proliferation of... Now you can buy the the big mat, and now you can buy the big big table. Right. And there are now multiple companies that offer without batting an eye. Oh, you can get this very nice table. How much is it? Oh, it's fourteen thousand uh, dollars. As I was told at Essen, and it's like, oh, but 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 if you want the one without all of these accessories, is only ten thousand dollars, and I imagine telling that to anyone who's not in the hobby or even other people in the hobby and look at their faces. You are thinking of paying what for a table to be able to play a game. And that's, that's weird to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think you touched on some really interesting points that like the playability needs to match the size, I guess. Like you, if it gets too big that you can't like read like what's going on on the board or if it gets too big that you like, there are some games that I think like if they were big and you couldn't really see the corner of the board, like it wouldn't be playable. If you couldn't read the iconography, if you couldn't read what was going on in, in a particular corner of the board. So I do think that there are obvious like limits to the like, grandiose nature <laughs> of the the board size, I guess. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are a lot of them that are made the right, correct size for w- all the different things that are going on. Like you touched on uh, Dwellings of Elderville. I think that, I don't think it's excessive. I think it's a big box and it's got a lot going on, but I do think that it, is very clear when you're playing and the icons are 
an appropriate size and everyone sitting around the table can easily see it. And it's not, you're not second guessing, like, what does that say? Like, what is, you know, so I, I, that's one of the games that I, I really enjoy owning is Dwellings of Elder Vale. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, Dwellings of Elder is not, uh, from the same company, uh, Dwellings of Elderberry is from. Let me check. Breaking Games. Uh, Breaking Games, yeah, and that's uh, Luke Lowry Design. But I think that Mind Clash is a company that um, has always found uh, the right balance between um, going large when they need to um, and not doing so when it's not needed. Um, again, uh, Mind Clash Games is a company that I really appreciate as a company, even if I realize that the only game of theirs that I really like is, uh, we have mentioned it many times, Anachrony. And I really, really like Anachrony, but it's the only one of theirs that I really genuinely enjoy because the other big one, well, big success, uh, Tricarian, I wasn't a big fan of. Serebia decided to not even play because it was... <laughs> <laughs> terrible rule book um voidfall i haven't tried yet but i decided not to back perseverance i got the demo and i was very happy that i didn't back it um but all of these games uh, both anachron that i really like and um tricarion and the others that i didn't like as much have i think the right balance of not being scared of expanding in size and quality and thickness to make the game more playable and clearer. But there is, with the exception maybe of Perseverance, there is rarely anything that feels superfluous. Even Cerebria, again, 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 that really didn't do it for me, that had, I think, problems with the rulebook and how the theme was set up, and even the game play itself didn't sound interesting to me. But it wasn't more than it needed to be. The, the experience that they wanted to convey was exactly that. So it was large enough to convey that experience, but without going over. And it's interesting because I think that of a company that is often producing table hogs, but never in a way that uh, feels overdone. Um, what do you feel about Lacerta games in this sense? Yeah. They're definite table hogs. Um, and I do know that I have to position the board in a certain way in order for it to be readable. Um, I feel like they've gone with a lot of... Um, haven't they gone with a lot of Ian O'Toole artwork recently? Yes. Yes, we tell you um, Which is good. Um, but I do think that sometimes his art can be a little... Get in the way of clarity? Yeah. I don't... I never would say that it's poor or, you know, not a good choice. But it, it definitely can make it a little unclear as to what symbols are or... Um, but I really like the art, so I'm willing to, you know, look, o squint a little bit <laughs> or go over to that side of the table to see what I need to see. But 
Um, yeah, I would definitely say they're they're table hogs. On Mars is a huge, huge game. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering again uh, on on this I don't have a surprisingly uh, an an opinion because I have played a few and some of them were in the pre deluxified edition. I played the old version of Vinyos. I played the old version of Kanban, and sometimes there was the need to clarify some of the game information. But I haven't played the new version, so I don't know if bigger was better in this in this case it certainly is from an aesthetic point of view but i would have to to check okay anything else that you wanted to to add to to this did you play um rococo the original rococo yes i did was it a big table hog no it wasn't uh, it was <laughs> it had a couple of maybe unnecessary extrusions from the board but it was regularly sized is it now gigantic it's obscene <laughs> obscene how large rococo has gotten the deluxe edition um and this said by someone who, who got the deluxe edition of castles of bergen of um, castle of mad king lewis uh, yes so this must be really bad <laughs> it's just it's just very very big oh it's a lot i'm looking at pictures now and then there's a, another board that you add to the side if you're playing with the jewelry box expansion. This is big, especially because all of those things are literally place a token here. Yes. Uh, all of the windows and the all, windows. Of the, yep. all of the top is like place a, a token here. And so the fact that they are what? Two and a half inches by one and a half inch yeah. when it would be like one by one, it's it's significant. And the are the cards oversized as well? On the yes. mic. You know, the, I they think are. they are. Yeah, this is they, they went with large cards because why not? So yeah, I think Eagle Griffin is another company that has decided to go large. But I think that sometimes their larger is not needed. <laughs> I don't think that this Rococo needed to be this big. I do like the pieces, but mm -hmm. I, I still think that the board could be smaller and still be readable. Well, I like that you say they also decided to go large and they are basically the publisher for Lacerda games. <laughs> so <laughs> two things go, go together. Um, I'm waiting for them to do a super side version of For Sale. Um, and that would be perfect. Yeah. But I remember when they came out with um, Age of Discovery, it was already a very big board. Francis Drake was very big in a period where things were not that big because Francis Drake is 2013. Mm. And 2013 was not, we were not there yet, especially for Euros. And I remember getting the Francis Drake box, which we owned for a few years. And it was a very big box with a very big board and a lot of stuff. And even there, the board didn't need to be that big. But uh, people must like it because Eagle Griffin is still there and doing very much the same. So Another one that I was thinking of was Champions of Midgard. As far as the table. Sure, no. no. <laughs> you don't think it's a table hog? 
Uh, I mean, but the, well, but the game base, the, the base game is not. It has this big board, uh, but and then yeah, I guess they added the two expansions to the side, um, but it fits on one playmat. No, I, I don't have the playmat. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it definitely is, and it does get busy. Um, I think my familiarity with the game makes me not think of it as one because yeah space wise i think it's big but not necessarily gigantic depending on where you put stuff um but yeah reading the board and reading all of the different things if you're not familiar with the game can be a little intimidating but but yeah it is it is big it is among the biggest viking games now that i think of it because blood rage has a relatively small um, board, but it has yeah. all miniatures lined up around it. So, okay, so that I guess <laughs> takes us to the to the end of the table hog discussion that uh, was appropriately large. Um, <laughs> so and so, why don't we move to our uh, intended review for today, which is nothing uh, new and they're shattering but i think a mainstay of our gaming world which is scythe so yes. scythe, uh, which is stonemeyer games and jamie stegmeyer design published in 2016 was born out of the art of jakub rosalski who then got into some problem for tracing but we'll leave that aside and it's set in this alternative europe circa 1920 where nations that resemble uh, actual european nations they didn't go too far into trying to uh, invent new ones uh, fight it out with max it's a big euro it was dubbed as a 4x game some people complain about some or other parts of that um it's a big game with a lot of rules so we certainly don't want to summarize all of it but basically uh, the core of the game is you get a faction mat and the technology or whatever mat and they combine to give you certain special powers and the set of actions that you can take the actions are the same for all the players but the cost and power is slightly different at the beginning of the game Um, and there are four actions that you take often moving trading which means buying resources producing which means getting resources for free depending on where your workers are and booster which makes you more strong militarily or later in the game uh, more popular and these are used to get resources to either get points mainly occupying territories or completing uh, in-game objectives which we can mention in a moment or to get resources to do the bottom actions that are differently paired to the main actions depending on your player technology board and they are upgrade making all of your actions better deploying which is building and deploying these these mechs which are the the core idea of the game even if they don't do as much as some people would want building which is removing things from your board and placing them on the general board making it uh making yourself stronger and enlisting which basically gives you resources um 
So you keep choosing an action every round. So it's one of those games where your turn is discrete and small, but the effects are very big and you keep doing it until someone reaches the uh, sixth objective. And you can do that by doing various different things, becoming popular, becoming powerful, winning up to two combats, uh, completing a specific objective, building all of your buildings, upgrading all of your action and listing all of your people, and obviously bringing up all of your workers or all of your um, mechs on the board. Again, not even trying to give uh, a general, uh, a detailed rule, but this is my, my short overview of it. What do you think is the general feeling of the game, at least for you? So, I don't feel like it's really a combat game. Even though there is combat and that is a part of it, I don't feel like there is... that. I wouldn't call this a combat game. Which is I why I think some people have an issue with it being 4X. Yes. classified as a 4X. And not only that, some people have a problem not just with the classification, but with the experience. I mean, um, I don't want to paint everyone who has a problem with it as someone who's a stickler for definitions, right? It is that it is true that if you go into this and it features Max very prominently on the cover and uh, a lot of the encounters and other things that you can do in the game, you can go to certain places and something happens that gives you choices and a lot of those feature and uh, both in the description or in the images max for all of that max don't do that much i mean they are an integral part of the game but if you're playing for example just because it's fresh on my mind uh, blood rage that we mentioned a couple of times this episode those monsters are gonna be very relevant you cannot play blood rage and ignore the monsters or ignore your miniatures you can never build a mech and still win a site or build one um, you can fight once or twice if you fight more you are doing something wrong usually in sight so i do understand someone who was not only a matter of definition but someone getting there and being uh, a little upset um, for me it is a resource management game um, true and true with the one thing that I like beside the visual, and we'll get to that, is this quick nature of, of the actions. Each action is small, is I move two pieces, done. Or I produce, count up how many people I have where, I get these many resources, done. And then maybe you do a little bit more. But it's one of those games where small actions don't mean small game, actually mean very big and very involved game. So. Um, what is for you the the main hook so i think that you also like it but we will get to to that but um what what is that keeps you coming back to to site or if you were to introduce it to someone else and say well you should try site because what i think it's the the um undefined ending that there's not like a set number of rounds or that there's not a set time as to when the game could end. And you really have to be like watching what other people are doing. How are they setting themselves up to, to create the ending of the game? Because I mean, playing with you guys, I learned (laughs) very quickly the hard way that like the ending can sneak up on you. If you are not paying attention, 
if you don't see, oh, this person's setting up to, you know, and their la- in their next two turns get their last two stars, I'm like, uh, oh no. <laughs> um, so I think that that's always a really fun part of the game for me. Mm-hmm. Just like that push and pull of like, okay, I'm going to go for this, but wait, if I go for this, then that's setting up this for them to do something easy. So let me do this instead. And so, yeah, like you said, it's a lot of little actions that make a big game. Yeah, I think you make an excellent excellent point about the the closing, the ending. You you had mentioned it, I think, as the main example. In, um, in episode 14 of season one, we talked about how do games end mm-hmm. and brought this up then and i that stuck with me that's why i went to see what episode it was in um and yeah i think that that also functions as a as a balancing like sometimes i, I read online that some people can finish the game with a certain combination of faction and um, technological board in like 13 rounds or something crazy like that and probably our games are more in in the twenty uh, or so, right? But that works for both because if you're playing with people who, who are playing it a lot, and I remember there was a period where there were groups that were playing it once or twice a week. Now it seems to have waned a little bit, but that used to be the case. And you would go to a, a meetup on a Saturday, and you would see two or three tables with the same people playing it. And so yeah. obviously, those people, the game gets shorter, but everyone tends to be on that level so they can do more in 13 plays while when someone plays it the first time is is surprised is longer but it's longer for everyone so that that works um okay theme and components so for me that was what first drew me to 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 site it was one of the first kickstarter i ever backed and it came with an oversized board again kind of a table auger although it doesn't get that big but the board itself is really large um the rest well no it is because then you have all of your stuff so it can yeah oh yeah (laughs) it had very realistic resources which stayed on the board and that was super that is today super cool resources stay on the board which in practical terms changes little because you put them where you're you tend to put them where your enemy cannot get to but it's nice to see them on the board and the art of, again, all issues of copying or whatever aside, I didn't follow that uh, kerfuffle, but it's very cool <laughs> to me. And I really like that when you have encounters, they, the choices are spelled out, but the story is narrated only through images. Um, is there anything that you like particularly about the theme and components or vice versa that you don't care for? Um, I really like the little wooden pieces for, like, the hearts and the stars and the little... I still think it's a beetle. Oh, the the power. The, the, the power track. <laughs> it looks like a little beetle to me, but... Um, I, yeah. I, I doubt it's a beetle, because I don't know <laughs> it could be, but I know exactly what it needs to be. It seems to be a mixture of military insignia. I, I have no idea what it's supposed to be. It's but, the power beetles. <laughs> and I'm trying to think, even wanting to be critical, which I don't particularly feel like, but uh, I don't, I am, I am hard pressed thinking of something that I would dislike. For example, the buildings are relatively simple 
um, even for wooden shape. Mm-hmm. They are, but, they, but they work for what they are because they need to fit on a board before being placed. So I have a hard time imagining how you could do that with a better uh, component. Yeah, you could screen print them, but those are really details. I think that everything is uh, very carefully crafted. Um, yes. And uh, the factions are different and all of that. We talked a lot about base and dark, I, I feel, so maybe we, we can we can skip it. Um, okay, strategy and replayability. What, what do you feel about those in this game? So I feel like if you play the same group multiple times, like if you play the same faction... I feel like you're going to get into a place where you're going to be doing the same things over and over. Um, Because each faction starts in a specific spot on the board, and that kind of dictates what resources you have immediately available to you. So I feel like the, the beginning, at least for the different factions, those can be a little, not monotonous, but it it's... It's a very clear, this is what I need to do in the beginning because this is what's available to me immediately. But as far as the different, so you have the different matchups of the different um, maths. So even though you might have specific resources, they might mean some something completely different based on what mat you're playing. So that is where it kind of has that, that replayability. Um, also like if you're playing against someone who is playing the, the team that sets traps or whatever, like, so there's a lot of different little things that are tweaked based on what factions you're getting, uh, that I think make it have a strong replayability value. Yeah. And I am, I think you, you strike on the, the variability of both maths and factions is one of those games where the first expansion, Invaders from Afar, which adds the Albion and Tokigawa, basically the pseudo-English and the pseudo-Japanese factions, I think that it, that's one of those rare examples of a, um, an expansion that adds more of the same, more factions and more boards, but that exponentially increases replayability rather than additionally, right? Normally, let's like, say, in the Sand, a game that I like a lot, you add in an expansion that means you have more encounters and more classes, etc., and that adds to your opportunities. But this, because of how the board is uh, constructed and because of what you were mentioning, that the pairing of a faction with a technology board changes completely what you do at the beginning, that opens up. Because all of a sudden, if you're playing, say, four players, not only changes what you can do, but it changes what you have around, what side is open to you, whether you can race for that encounter or instead you can guarantee that you will have enough metal or whatever it is. And the pairing with the technology makes it very replayable. Um, To me, I think it would be replayable even before getting into how starkly different you have to play all, all of the factions. But I have played it I mean, I have played it, I think, quite a bit, um, but not a crazy number of... Yeah, I played it 26 times, which is a lot for me. Yeah. But I know of people who have played the site 100 
uh, time. So obviously it's different. Um, so for me, one of the things that makes it interesting, and I'm getting to, to this point on our list, is when I try to think of what to compare it to, I, I kind of draw a blank which shows how, how and why it is popular. Can you think of any game that you would compare it to for for any element? I mean, besides single elements that obviously we can find in others, but I am drawing a blank here. What about My Little Scythe? I mean, that feels like cheating. <laughs> I mean, but you said you were drawing a blank, so I mean... Fair enough. There you go. Which also, it has a very nice story. My Little Scythe was born as a as a fun project, a dad built it for his daughter. And then Jamie Stegmaier heard of it and decided to help them publish it, which is a very cheerful story. Speaking of Jamie Stegmaier, um, we normally try to, to do a little bit of connection to the artist and uh, the designer. The artist Jacob Robosowski basically did any, nothing else, uh, which I think comes from the fact that he has a very, very distinct uh, art style. He was not a board game artist. He was his own um, artist on on artist website, and so he was commissioned to do this. But he hasn't worked in um, board games much. He did one other thing, Euro Brigade, which no one has heard of. Jamie Stegmaier is obviously instead a very a prolific designer. Which, besides sight, I tend not to be a super fan of. Um, I liked uh, Between Two Cities, which I don't even know if it's his. I know it's his company. What about you? Have you enjoyed any of his other designs? So, Did you like? So I was thinking of of another one that is similar, oh, and it's um, Euphoria, which is also his, right? Yes. Yeah. So Euphoria. I remember having a fantastic theme. You are basically a dictator in a dystopian world um, with humor. Good dice. Uh, what what made you make the comparison? Um, you have to get. It has the same sort of um, goal ending, goal based mm -hmm. ending. Oh, um, fair enough. With when you stars. place ten of your yeah stars, then you. Um, that's when you score the ending. So it, it felt like that where you have that, you know, when is it going to end kind of feeling? Um, but I did like that game. It, I've only played it, I think maybe once or twice, but it was very, it was, I liked the theme and that was enough for me to, you know, try it and now see that, how it was. Now that I'm thinking in terms of, of, the designer, I think that Charterstone wanted to have some of that very easy actions that expand a lot, but that was a legacy game, so it, it, it did it in a very different way. Um, uh, what about Red Rising? Did you did you like that one? Yeah, That's I like Red Rising. Yeah, and and obviously one the other famous game by Jamie Segmaier is Viticulture, and that's the well and tapestry. And so tapestry. yeah, had a lot of hits, and I think that that's what I see as being his trade union throughout his games, which is games that can be quite complex, but where 
your single action is relatively straightforward and easy. Um, Viticulture is as easy as the other. It's it's a worker placement. So all worker placement have that idea. It's more noticeable in the others because the others do different things. But yeah, I think that um, that is part of his journey in a way. So um, final thoughts on site. I uh, I what can I say? I'll let you have the the final words in a moment <laughs> to bring it to a close. But I I like it. I was never enamored with it like some others but i think i want to stress again that there are some people that were really almost obsessed with sight so i really really like it it's a game that i will play anytime anyone wants i think it's a great production i'm very happy to own it um and i enjoy playing it i enjoy playing it often um it has a nice time play play time which we didn't mention it it's relatively quick for what it is um and I, it gives me, I don't think I look at side to get any particular feeling about it. If I want to, if I really feel like a conflict game, I don't go to side. But also if I really want a crunchy euro, probably don't go to side. If I want a quick game, probably don't go to side. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the collection or someone mentions it, it's a game that draws me in. So it's unique. Um, so it, I don't think it does anything of the thing it does better than any other game specific i mean of some other games yes but it's not the best in any of these categories but the final product is unique and original and different and i think that's what draws me in what about you yeah i mean i feel like i don't play it as often as i would like um scott really didn't like it um and so that always will when uh my game buddy does not (laughs) like it uh it doesn't hit the table as much so um but my friend is coming over for thanksgiving so hopefully we will get that to the table at least once um but yeah no i really liked it um i will say the expansions i uh, i really like the the one that gave the extra factions um some of the other ones i didn't really care for um, like the the fan based one, I thought I've played with that once, and I thought that it was a little overpowered. I feel like the encounters, a lot of the 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 joy I get from this game is the balance, and I feel like that expansion in particular kind of threw things out of whack because some of them the encounters were ridiculous you were getting like a free mech for like nothing like (laughs) and so it just seemed like it completely threw things out of whack and i think that the the key feature and the the main thing for me with this game is the balance and really getting that push and pull between other players and it's a dynamic experience yeah i think the expansions Again, it speaks to the greatness of the game that I played it 26 times, maybe 25, I, I, something like that. Um, and I, beside the first one, I feel no need for the other expansions. Um, <laughs> I played once with the, the, the air, airship. Uh-huh. Um, and beside the models, I liked the models, but I didn't like how they opened up the map and made a lot of positioning less important. Um, I'm actually 
interested in what I hear about the Rise of Fenry campaign and the modules that it adds, uh-huh. but I feel no need to own it. And again, usually I really like the idea of expanding games that I like. Um, Imperium, I'm waiting until I've played it enough to feel like justify buying the expansion. Um, whilst I, I think I'm very happy with it as it is after a lot of plays, and I think that's that's testimony to its strength. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Yes, yes. Um, thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, Nathan. It's it's a pleasure, despite the the scheduling conflicts with being on the two sides of the same ocean, but on the wrong two sides. Well, <laughs> we're, yeah, if we were one in Antarctica, the other in the South Pole, it would be easier, though we'll be cruising to death. Um, yes. But yeah, uh, it was it was a pleasure. Yes. So again, yeah, thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or anything for us, even if you just want to say, hey, uh, we really appreciate it, and we look forward to hearing from you. So signing out is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.